Love the cases. Love the clauses. Love the adverbs and the antecedents. Love the words. From ELFM. Hello and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. In a minute, an interview with the writer and educator Anne Colwell. First of all, some new writing from young people in our Next Generation Foundation group on the theme of water. I sit on the wooden banks of the river, staring at the creatures that rise and fall from the rushing liquid when I notice something peculiar with gliding across the water. A large firefly with rainbow gradients staring me down as it ebbs slowly towards me, being careful not to disturb the, li- the liquid crystal below its fuzzy orange belly. Once it reaches me, it lifts its fat body from the water. And suddenly, an illuminous light drowns the surrounding area, revealing a spectacle of reds and yellows, blues and pinks, until I too am devoured in the light. The large boat then drifts towards me and takes refuge on my head before I felt, felt a soft hum from the creature's sleeping breaths. Did a firefly just go to sleep on my head? Crystal blue water encloses island, mirroring the clear cobalt skies which concealed the world below. These waters led to pristine, uninhabited beaches, utterly overwhelming as these forsaken sands stretched for miles, seemingly endless. The indigo liquid provided life for the land, with rivers breaking off, setting foot deep into the isles' overgrown forests. The moisture flowed through and enchanted these woods, providing life and sustenance for its inhabitants with this entire jungle in harmony, respecting the majesty of this water. The flow of dark, dirty water fills you with hate. People feel these things inside and out. It's everywhere you go. It's everywhere you go. Sapphire blue waves swaying forwards and backwards silently. That's what you see. However, the ocean is much more than that. It's a colony, a variety of difference working together to survive, defending against predators, attacking against prey, or even fleeing from us. 
Some people don't believe. Some people just laugh and walk away. These people will never find the true secrets of the depths of the ocean. They will never discover things about the sea forgotten in time. Only 5% of the oceans have been discovered and charted. This is what the scientists say in their white lab coats working in a posh office, not even remotely close to the sea. If people just look closer, if people just look at that shadow a second longer, they will discover infinite aquatic life far beyond these scientists' imaginations. They will discover human-like creatures with history far superior to the human race. They will discover species that we are destroying before we even get to understand them. They will find the supposedly mythical mer people. Some people believe though. Some people, but not enough people. This is why they have fallen to myth. Pure and utter myth. I beg for more, it rasps around my throat, and I beg for more. There's an oasis of joy, and I am a deserted in doom. I drop to my knees, sipping sweet sand. It doesn't do anything, so it sinks under me. Suddenly, thrash, scream, silent, I beg for it to stop. It seeps into my mouth and oozes into my lungs. Oh God, it hurts, make it stop. Choking, drowning, thirsty. I'm left so empty yet so full of nothing and it rips a hole inside me from the inside out. How do I get what is inside me out? I found out there is no joy, only sand and this sunstruck desert land. I found out there is no joy, only sand, and this sunstruck desert land. is this evolutionary thing that happens from our eyes as if a predator will take pity trickles of salty liquid override the internal animalistic drive to consume us the hope that our cheeks will be licked clean does it draw us closer you will set me off and I shall copy your behavior as if holding up a mirror Substance weeps down rocks, pipes, walls. Why are cheeks so different? Sunlight, 
So, good evening. You're listening to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And uh, this evening, in our series of interviews that I've been doing over the last six months or so with people who are writers, producers, making things happen in the arts in our region, I've got Anne Corbell with me. Hello, Anne. Hi, Peter. It's good to be here. It's lovely to have you with us in the virtual studio because we're not, of course, in our uh, lovely new Chapel FM building at the moment. We can't be there uh, for a little while longer. But So uh, we are reaching each other's homes. That's what we've been doing for the last six months. And on your website, it says you're a freelance writer and education specialist. So I'm going to read out uh, a few things as well from what you put on the, your introduction on the website. Your first collection of poetry was Painting the Spiral Staircase. By, um, published by Cinnamon Press, and you were a co-editor of the Valley Press Anthology of Prose Poetry. I'm going to ask you all about that. And uh, you've got a new collection of prose poetry out called Alice and the North. So, yeah, it looks wonderful, and uh, it's out on... Th- is it, are you launching it on Thursday, Anne? Yes, I'm doing a number of events in the region, to be honest, Peter. The first of which is with Matthew Headley Stoppard um, as part of Leeds Libraries Promotions, and that's this Thursday. And um, then I'm doing another Zoom launch next week with Jonathan Davidson. Fantastic. Well, well I'll ask you a bit about uh, how people can attend Thursdays, in fact, the other one too, and, and where they can find information about that towards the end. Um, but um, in the meantime, yeah, tell us a little about it, the new collection, Alice in the North. That's an intriguing title. Tell us. Yes, it's a collection of uh, prose poetry that I've written over the last number of years. And um, I describe it as a love song to the North. And by the North, I'm largely talking about the North of England, but the book sort of spills out up into Norway, across to Minneapolis and even to Russia. So the North expands throughout the book. The reason why it's called Alice in the North is um, it's connected by a main character who runs through the whole of the book. So Alice is a bit of an Alice in Wonderland figure. She starts off as a child, but then she moves away from Lewis Carroll's idea and becomes an adult and a writer in her own, you know, in her own sphere. Um, I had great fun writing something that was a book-length sequence of poems. Absolutely. I mean, I've read some of the book. Uh, it's fascinating. They, they're, they're kind of flashes yeah, of almost flashlight moments in in the life of, of Alice. It seems to me on first on first reading. I mean, you've had a you've done a lot of thinking about what North and the North means. Um, tell us a little about the PhD that you did. Yes, I have been thinking about this as a topic because, as you've just pointed out, it was my main topic of study as well as creative work for the last five years. And I've been exploring sort of all the myths and ideas and sort of contemporary contemporary cultural um, stereotypes that we have of the region. And uh, so, really, I wanted to get beyond um, whippets, football and flat caps when it came to Alice (laughs) and present a cheeky version, a perhaps slightly more female version of the North. It's very much Alice's own individual view. I'm not trying to define the region, which I think is impossible to define, and I'm sure your listeners would agree with me there. Absolutely. Um, perhaps, Anne, give us if you could give us a flavour of of uh, the pieces in the book by uh, read us read us one. Okay, so I've chosen one from the beginning of the book where Alice is still a child, and this poem is called Ferns and Voles. Alice doesn't have a looking glass, but there's a full length mirror in her mother's room and a cat that refuses to smile. She's five and the world is full of wonder. She makes rose petal tea for her dolls, rabbit and a stuffed tiger. Alice has a den in the bottom of her wardrobe that smells of plimsolls. She visits a tree house at Sarah's in a crack willow where the branches fork and the sky falls in. Henny penny, run, run. And when it snows, Alice burrows into drifts like a vole and the world is crystalline and mauve. Ice ferns her bedroom window and she doesn't speak for days. 
She turns six and a baby sister appears. Alice makes a new den in the garage from two deck chairs, a broom and a grey felt blanket. She steals a packet of her sister's Farley's rusks and eats them out there on the concrete floor. A chest freezer full of lamb carcasses and frozen veg hums in the corner. Somewhere in the house, her father is curled up like a caterpillar in an armchair, listening to bark, his head wreathed in smoke. Thank you. That's Anne Corbell reading from Alice in the North, new collection of prose poems published by Valley Press. Anne, um, tell us a little about prose poetry. You've, you've, obviously, you've obviously done a lot of work with the form, having edited or co-edited the Valley Press anthology with with Oz Hardwick. For people who are unacquainted with the form, just tell us a bit about prose poetry and how it differs from a poem. Okay, Peter, I'll give, give you my best shot. <laughs> I think as a form, it's very difficult to pin down. Um, at the beginning of doing my research and, and writing of Alice in the North, I did think of it like trying to write a photo in words within a frame. And in my collection, I have kind of framed each prose poem as a, as a rectangle. Um, I think as a form, it borrows elements from prose and poetry, obviously, and has no line breaks, but it uses the sentence really as its governing spirit and unit. I very much see it like musical improvisation, like jazz. So in each of the poems, I've tried to riff round a central idea and I found it very freeing for my own work in poetry. Mm, certainly intriguing. I mean, uh, do have a look if you haven't uh, seen the Valley Press anthology of prose poetry. It's a, it's a, it's a really lovely collection of work. And uh, with a, I mean, how many writers involved in that town? Um, there were over 70 writers, Peter, from all corners of the British Isles, including the Isle of Wight, Scotland, Northern Ireland, even up into um, the Hebrides. Um, so we had loads and loads of interests and far too many submissions. You know, I think it's having a real zeitgeist moment <laughs> at, at present. Absolutely. Well, I do. I do recommend uh, if you're interested. Well, if you're interested in poetry, if you're any kind of writing, it's it's a it's a it's a really lovely collection of of, uh, of writing. But uh, Anne, um, obviously the, the the piece you just read um, from Alice in the North was about the early life of of Alice. Um, tell us a bit about about you. Are you originally from the North, or are you from even further north, as I suspect some of your family are? <laughs> Um, I'm quite a mixture, to be honest, Peter. Um, my father was from Aberdeen, and my mother was actually born in Chicago. Um, I um, was born in London, and so I am an incomer in the north of England, so I can hear quite a sharp intake of breath now <laughs> from listeners. Um, but I moved up to just below Manchester when I was two and a half, and um, for the last 15 years I've made West Yorkshire my home. So really, um, I didn't have an agenda when I began writing this book. It was much more an exploration of northernness, identity, and um, what this might mean to a person with a kind of varied background, I suppose, but, but a strong connection to it as an idea and a sense of place. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, in terms of identity and place, again, I, I, uh, I think this has been a theme. I remember you said once that you had spent time in Canada in Banff. Tell us a bit about that residency. It sounds like it was very influential for you. Yes, I think it was, Peter. Um, it's quite a number of years ago now that I um, was awarded a place to go and uh, study over at the Banff Centre for Writing, which is, in Canada, it's a bit like the equivalent to the Arvon um, places, residential places here in the UK. Um, it was up in the Rocky Mountains, um, absolutely beautiful place to be. And um, it really opened me up, I think, to um, working with a group of writers from all over the world, including Mexico and um, Canada itself. And to be honest, I think my love of prose poetry came from meeting people over there who were very wide-ranging in the way they approached what, what a poem could be. Mm, and of course, Banff, a very northern place. Um, I've been near there, uh, Whistler around there, Vancouver. It does feel 
north of Hemisphere and flying over to Canada, you know, you go over the kind of Greenland and just these icebergs. It was quite extraordinary. I remember it very vividly. Um, but um, in terms of um, influences and and mentors, and I mean, in term and your early life, was were you always going to be a poet? And and how did that happen? How did that occur? <laughs> I have always written, that's true, and um, my very, very first success was I once uh, won a, a competition in the Brownies for reciting poetry <laughs> a very long time ago. Um, so it's always been part of my life, but it took me a very long time to, began to begin to see myself as a professional writer. Um, really, it wasn't until my 40s that I started taking the writing side of my work life very seriously. I'd always been encouraging other people and working in the community up until that point. Um, but then after that, um, I began to publish my own work and, um, you know, begin to see it as a central part of myself and, and what I do as a, you know, as a creative person. Why is it that some of us do find it hard to come to terms with the fact that that's what we are, that some people have no difficulty, it seems, in declaring themselves to be a writer very early on in their lives. And other of us, and others of us, including myself and obviously you, just take time to to come out about it. Why is that? I think I'd always seen myself as an educator and a facilitator and someone who you know, could speak on behalf of other people. But I'm not very good at self-promotion, Peter. And that also includes, you know, sort of early messages from childhood, I think, mm. about not blowing your own trumpet. <laughs> and <laughs> to be a poet, the thing you need to do is blow that trumpet very loudly, I think. <laughs> so, yes, it, it has taken me a while, probably to do with confidence as well. And uh, also a sense of entitlement, of feeling that... Um, my views were just as um, valid as anybody else's to be out there in the public sphere. But, you know, I'm making up for lost time now. You are indeed. And was there any, um, why, why did you, I'm just interested in that, in, in that transition of thinking from being an educator, working in the community to taking your work seriously. Would, did, is that, um, why did it happen at that age? I mean, you say that gradually it was a sort of growing of confidence did any did it was any individual or group of individuals um, sort of uh, yeah did they help with that? Yes, I think I've been really really lucky in my working life to be honest. And um, when I was younger, I met two wonderful poets called Graham Morton and Lisa Stubbersfield, who really acted as mentors when it came to poetry and encouraged me to write and publish. Um, but then after I was 40, my mother died and I decided to do a master's in creative writing over at MMU. I was very lucky to have Simon Armitage and Caroline Duffy as my tutors over there. So, you know, you can't get better mm. than that, can you? Two laureates there um, cheering you on from the sidelines. Um, and I just thought, it's now or never. I need to give this my best shot. But yes, it, it took a, you know, there's a long gestation period there, as, as we've both just mentioned. Well, it'd be great to hear a bit more about your education, community writing, and you've done a great deal of that, and I know very effectively. Um, but in the meantime, let's have some music. You've, you've chosen a piece of music as your first one. Uh, tell us about it and why you've chosen it. Yes, this first piece is called We Are Leaving by Corrine Polwart, and it really goes back to um, what you were asking me a few minutes ago and sort of my connections with the north of England. Um, as I said, my family are from Aberdeen and um, I see Corrine's um, work um, very, very rooted in that um, Scottish landscape and sense of place. And also my dad emigrated from Scotland. He never went back to live there as an adult. So this phrase, we're all leaving, you know, the fact that so many people from that country end up all over the world. There is thunder on the skyline And it tears a breath away Like the twilight steals the day A father's kind hand could not command her 
return to him once more, like a soldier from the war. And we're all leaving, even the ones who stay behind. We're all leaving in our own time. Each night surrenders to morning, and beneath the April sky, you can hear an endless cry on smiling fields. There's a battle raging, and for every bloom, he knows another flower never grows. We're all leaving, even the ones who stay behind. We're all leaving in a wrong time, and we're all leaving in a wrong time. And he has no. To bear him from this flood, just a broken vessel rod in flesh and blood, and all the riptides pull him under. He will not cease to wonder at the beauty. He takes her mother to the church door, and while she prays for what will come, he walks those woods alone. And there he builds his own cathedrals, and on every whirring wing, he can hear the whole world sing. We're all. So that was Kareem Polwart with We're All Leaving, chosen by our guest tonight on Love the Words here on East Leeds FM, Anne Caldwell. Um, so Anne, it'd be great if we could hear another piece, another prose poem from uh, Alice in the North, your new collection with the wonderful Valley Press from, uh, from Scarborough. Um, the next... Um prose poem I'm going to read from the collection is, is much later in Alice's life. Alice is the same central character that is linked through all the poems. And um, this poem is called The, the Gate Opener. Um, quite a lot of the poems within this collection started off as me walking, and I think you'll get a sense of that in this poem. Alice tramps the Pennine Way all summer, and remote Cumbrian sheep farms in the winter, lying in wait for ramblers, vagabonds, genuine Romanies, long-distance walkers, locals out for a stroll and fair-weather campers. She loves them all in separate ways. Now legendary throughout the North, she can negotiate any kind of five-bar, 
kissing or latchkey gate, unlocks padlocks with a hairpin that she keeps in her knickers, always shuts and secures each field after strangers. She collects all the smiles, nods, pecks on the cheek and cheery thanks like bushes of wild flowers. One bright evening, Alice meets a man who's walked in solitude for miles and now wants to tell another human being of the boggy moors, sodden clothes, the way the mist came down, his pedometer readings, the exact number of miles traversed. Yes, very visual, as you say, uh, almost framed framed pictures in time and uh, lovely stuff. Well, we'll be hearing another of those pieces towards the end of the interview and Anne will be telling us about where to get hold of the book and also uh, about the launch that's coming up on Thursday and uh, the following week as well. But Anne, let's um, talk a little about your education work um, because most of the people who I've been interviewing over these Love the Words programmes have been um, had a very strong kind of community element, participatory element to their work, and you you are certainly one of those people. So um, yeah, tell us a bit about your 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 history in that sort of dimension of writing. Um, when I was much younger, I was the artistic director of a community arts company based in Rochdale, um, which is still going. Actually, it's celebrated and a. A major anniversary last year. It's called Cartwheel Community Arts and at that time I was working alongside people from all different art forms but I was beginning to see writing as the you know the one thing that I could bring to the company. So I was writer-in-residence on um, the Langley Estate on the edge of Manchester for a year and got involved in community publishing. Um, I went on to become um, what was known as a literature development worker in the north, um, primarily in Oldham and Preston, um, encouraging people who worked in libraries to get involved in reading and in writing groups, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time in both of those towns. Uh, more recently, I've become a bit more specialised in working with people with mental health issues, so I've done some work for Hoots, in Huddersfield, which is a company that works with adults with mental health issues and uses writing as a tool. And um, last uh, this last month, uh, I ran a Prose Poetry Week for the Arvon Foundation. It was online, which was a shame because I would have loved to have done it as a residential week face to face. But in this COVID times, you know, it was still lovely to be able to share my knowledge and passion for my practice and my art form with um, a group of very interested people absolutely and does it does it does it um does it help do you think in your when you're when you're working with writers young writers new writers emerging writers people who perhaps new to writing that you are also a writer i see it central these days um it's almost like feeding the you know, the, the big bowl of soup in the middle of a table. If your own practice is alive and well and you're passionate about it, I think that spills out into all the community and education work that you can do. So um, it's advice I would give to any writer these days is to make sure that you focus on your own work and your own practice and keep that part of your life strong and healthy. You know, it's a bit like going for a good walk each day. It sort of, <laughs> yeah, keeps those... Uh, creative juices flowing yes i think i think that's right i mean i certainly feel that and and uh, the fact that i'm grappling with writing this thing that we do uh, does help uh, sort of I, I mean in fact these days i don't know about you but i i, I rather than deliver workshops I, I really prefer to work with people who are in a workshop situation i mean and and kind of be collaborators rather than deliver i don't feel i have a sort of body of i mean i have experience but the whole thing about sort of delivering wisdom over to other people i, f I find not as satisfying these days it's just working alongside how about you oh i would completely echo that view peter uh, i think we've got as much to learn from other writers as they have from us and um, i'm not really a chalk and talk person to be honest and much prefer a spirit of collaboration and you're working with the open university at the moment 
Yes, I've been teaching for them and with them for a long period of time. And at the moment, um, I've got about 70 students, to be honest, of all stages of writing experience. And uh, that's a privilege. So what do you, what is it that, what are the most satisfying <coughs> moments for you when you're working with a, a, a student, a writer? I think what I really enjoy is seeing that growth and development in confidence that someone has if they're getting good constructive feedback and also just the excitement people have when they can see that their writing practice is going well. Uh, so I, I love editing and working with a whole range of writers and what's great about working for the Open University is um, I get, at the moment I'm working with people who are interested in writing their life stories as well as poetry and um you know that is just a joy to to be a witness to and to um hear those stories and read them as people unfold during the course of a year and uh yeah well, well i can imagine how how important that could be for somebody writing their life story i mean it's, it's very delicate material and uh to have somebody who who's listening and supportive also knows their their onions in terms of uh, of craft. What what a what a great thing that will be. And um, and it obviously it obviously feeds into your own work as you were saying into your own writing. And not in the sense of of taking stuff away from what they're doing, but in terms of yeah, kind of um, yeah, feeding the pot. As, as I like that metaphor of the table, the pot in the middle of the table. And what about the last six months for you, oh, the, since March, this rather odd period that we've been living through? How, how have you been during all this? I think there have been peaks and troughs, to be honest, and I'm sure many people would agree with me there. Um, early on, back in March, April of this year, I took part in a month, um, it's called the National poetry writing month or something can't remember the exact name which meant I was writing every day and sharing that with a group of people online and I really really enjoyed doing that and ended up with a lot of material to be honest um, whether it's um, stuff that I would take on and publish later I don't know I think it just felt therapeutic at the time um, more recently I think having Alice in the North coming out into the world feels really important to me. I'm so pleased to see this book being launched. Um, what's slightly sad is not being able to share that with people face to face, but there we are. <laughs> we are living in interesting times, aren't we? Well, maybe you should have a second launch sometime next year. It's always lovely to see that uh, that uh, pile of, of new books on on the table there that Jamie McGarry from Valley Press has, has brought along. In fact, uh, you very kindly came and read at the launch of my poetry collection back in 2016, uh, uh, which uh, again that was with Valley Press. Tell, tell us a bit about Valley Press. How does it how, how's it been working with Jamie again? I've really enjoyed it. We've got a good working relationship, Peter, and I've known him now for a number of years. So we worked very closely on the anthology of prose poetry that I co-edited with Oz Hardwick, and then. Working this time on, on my new collection, uh, Jamie uh, sent me a wonderful editor called Martha Sprackland, who's been closely looking at the poems. So I felt really blessed having both of them on side. Um, it's a great press, and I would encourage everyone to take a look at their lists and the wealth of new material that's coming out. Valley Press are a small independent publisher with big ambitions. They're based up in Scarborough. And these days, I think small publishers just need all the support they can possibly get. Totally, totally right. Yeah, I would endorse all that. Sprackland is a very uh, poetry name. Any relation? <laughs> um, I think, um, don't get me wrong, please, if, if, if I might be mistaken here, but I think Martha Sprackland is Jean Sprackland's daughter. Well, that's a, that's a great, uh, great poetry line so there. a fam family dynasty going on there lovely so i'm sure someone will c correct me if that's not true <laughs> she, she might but get, i think it is true. she might just threaten us yes. down the phone i'm no relation no relation no i'd be proud of that relation if it was me um so let's have another poem from from alice in the north 
Okay, thanks, Peter. I thought I would read the final poem in the collection. It's a little bit of a tongue twister to read out loud, to be honest, so I'll do my best. It's called Wonderland, and it's the only prose poem that I would say follows a strict rhythm. Um, I kind of wanted to break my own, own rules within this book, and this final poem does that. Okay, Wonderland. Alice's North is all pound shops and chip balms, three curries and rice, please, and fish supper Fridays. It's Yemen in Eccles and Halal in Bolton, Hockney in Saltaire and Hepworth in Wakefield. It's fragile uplands and flooding and heather, those diesel-fumed cities, no football or bitter. It's permeable borders and plenty of rail track, butts itself up against softness and Scotland. It's Newcastle hen parties, Baltic and Blackthorn, a rare slipper orchid protected in Malham. Her wildness of language is gritstone and millstone, volcanic in nature, or limestone dissolving in caverns and sinkholes, lost snickets and ginnels, or moorgram and mizzle. Don't mither me now with your fracking and twaddle. Alice's north is a jut of the chin, dot pudding in spring or a well-gutted kipper, mill-loft conversions and bronte-themed day trips, Branwell with gin in a Halifax tavern, Dorothy Wordsworth, fell walking all weathers, unquenchable love for an obstinate brother, her trailblazing, wonder-filled, copperplate letters. Mm, I enjoyed that very much. Yeah, lots of damp and heather and rain and stone. Wonderful. Thank you, Anne. So um, tell us about where you can get hold or we can get hold of... of Alice from the North and also tell us a bit about how we can attend uh, either of those launches you mentioned. Um, I think the best place to get hold of the prose poetry collection is just to Google Valley Press, Google Alice in the North and Caldwell and get it directly from the publisher. Uh, that's the best place to support it to be honest though it is available on other outlets you know the such as Amazon and, and you know online uh, outlets. Um, in terms of attending the launches, uh, the first one takes place this Thursday evening and it's organised by Leeds Libraries. Um, it's on Zoom and um, if you, and I'm doing it with Matthew Headley Stoppard, um, if people follow me on Twitter I can send them the links both to that launch and the next one. Um, so um, my Twitter address is um, at Caldwell underscore and with an E and Caldwell is spelt C-A-L-D-W-E-L-L. -L. Um, that's probably the best way of finding out about both events. I think the tickets for the Leeds Libraries event this Thursday with Matthew Headley Stoppard are going quite quickly. Well, I've got one of them, so I'll be there. Great. <laughs> <laughs> But you can't have mine. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, yeah. yeah. To be honest, Peter, if if these both um, get very booked up, then I'll do some more. And I'm also going to be a guest spot reader at the Runcible Spoon, organised by Kath Kathleen um, Stafford, and um, another event in the spring. So I'll just try and keep people posted. Thanks ever so much, Anne, and the best of luck with Alice in the North and with whatever you're doing at the moment and into the future. And, yeah, thanks for being with us here on Love the Words uh, tonight. Let's introduce uh, the last track that you've chosen, if you would. Thanks, Peter. I've chosen Green Garden by Laura Mulver. And the reason why I've chosen this particular song is to keep me going through this second lockdown. I've been taking part in a Zoom dance class every morning and this one has just been a sheer joy. And um, The dancing is um, very freeform and around the kitchen, uh, nothing special at all. <laughs> but it's great to dance with 30 people on Zoom, most of which are far better than me and can do things like stand on their head. Take me outside, sit in the green garden, 
Nobody out there But it's so okay now Bait in the sunlight Don't mind if rain falls Take me outside Sit in the green garden of a butterfly high as a treetop down again putting my bag down taking my shoes off walking the carpet a green velvet Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. Quando eu canto e a chuva cai. Thanks so much to Anne Caldwell for that interview here on Love the Words. Now, three poems by the York poet Tanya Nightingale, followed by a story by John Hepworth, Solemn Eli Walsh, read by Jimmy Andrex. Don't forget, we're still looking for six-line poems for Christmas and the New Year. A greeting, a wish, a vision. Please send it to me, peter at headstogether.org. 
www.hedgetogether.org. Peter at hedgetogether.org. Or drop it in or send it to Chapel FM Arts Centre, York Road, by December the 4th. Marble by Tanya Nightingale. Freakishly fierce summer rain coats the backs of miners lifting slabs, slicks the drifting dust to milky veins, splatters boots, cakes trucks, till concentration snaps and they laugh. This is a frontier forest, chestnut trees of palest green hiding the scabs of hacked-out stone. Alpine swift score us, rare wolves and wild boar tear into the night, but at Carrara's peak, a gift more gorgeous than finest bone, as if God had stolen light. This palest seam, used for David, shielded jealously. Guards running their palms along it as lovers might, while their sons, clock-watching, tread carelessly. This craft's passed down like gold or a secret, a weight in the heart, shown cautiously. In the workshop, a replica. Fifty tons of meekness awaits his moment. The director, like a father, pats a limb. I am old, but this boy, he says, his face breaking to sweetness, can do anything. I came here for him. Sulphur by Tanya Nightingale the quick scratch of a live match and I'm straight back, staring out of the patio window. Little girls all in a row. Dad's outside with my mother's friend's sons, my pretend cousins. The most relaxed I've seen him all year. Girls get to choose, boys to light the fuse. Muted, we oh and ah at every spark while they run round, my matters, laughing. The wrong time, wrong place, soldier, wanted to get it over, get away, stay hidden. Every Halloween I played him, in high hat and knee breeches, knowing little of his pain or his sentence. Then bonfire night just meant my birthday, the chance to start a fire and have my father see me. Turnips and Pumpkins by Tanya Nightingale There were lanterns in the grass on All Souls Day, large as America. Larger than anything we possessed to contain them, they spilled from boxes and baskets like a gargantuan picnic. Even the small ones could carry a human easily. Not willing to scare me or anyone, you would carve only smiling faces in the turnips we had. I didn't know this was the earlier custom, farmers digging up winter turnips to make lamps for the gods they had buried. Dismissive of the home-grown law, I wanted foreignness and fear. So when they land, dozens of extraterrestrial ships, I plead. What to do with all that flesh? These days, recipes for pumpkin soups and pies are a click away, but then we left a sunrise in the sink. You would dry the seeds, though, saying they were good for me. Eventually, the birds took them, in the dark. So you gave the rind big eyes and a wide smile, no complicated carving, just a welcome face. Why the fuss? It was the week of my birthday, and they were more vital than fireworks or bonfire. Drama masks that gave us only comedy for the day. Solemn Eli Walsh and the Curse of the Pineapple by John Epworth A tale composed after overhearing Sam Barra express unease at the decorative truss rod cover on a new guitar. This here's a little story. It's a story about a man and a guitar. It ain't no story about a guitar and a man who couldn't play it or couldn't play it right. 
In fact, if you want to know why I'm talking to you all, it's because the man who played that thing did it so darn unearthly right that people got to wondering how he learned its ways. Because this wasn't no old timer who played all his life long. No, this was a young man with a very considered attitude to what he was doing. People even called him Solemn for a sort of nickname. Well, not really a nickname, more a title you might say. You see, this young man's name was Eli Walsh, and when he arrived in a bar carrying that guitar, folks there would say, here comes that solemn Eli Walsh, now we're going to hear something. And they did, because he played the blues, the old blues, and he played them so right that people wondered about that music, and about the guitar, and the singing, and about the young man who did it. They even sometimes wondered about his haircut. There were times they didn't say his name or mention the guitar or talk about the music. It was just enough to say the one with like the rockabilly haircut. And whoever it was would say, yep, that's the guy. One of them said, yep, that's the guy. A stranger he was, but settled in kind of easy. And he also said, that there hairstyle, you know, it wasn't always like that. Ed's turned. No, not even always that colour. It's black now, black as you'll ever see without a colour looking unnatural, but it wasn't black before, or brown, or red even. It was blonde. People in that bar who were raising drinks to their lips set the glasses right back down on the table, the bar top, the piano, the jukebox, the cigarette machine, anywhere just so they could stand with their two hands on their hips and their eyebrows high as they looked at the speaker. Some who were walking out of the bar because they were already late for where they were going swivelled round in the doorway and went back inside, staring at the talkative stranger. He didn't notice. He would have just kept right on talking anyhow. That young fellow with a guitar, he had a head of blonde hair, not ordinary blonde hair neither. Not bleach white blonde hair, no, it was yellow. Real golden yellow. Could have been his pride and joy just the way it was, but he made darn sure everyone took notice, because he had it cut expensive and gelled up in short, thick points all over. More points than you could count, but just the right number for the top of his head to look like a pineapple. And when people called him Pineapple Head, it pleased him. Because there was a time when he liked piano blues and he was kind of taken with recordings of the player they called Pine Top Perkins, even though he always thought there wasn't quite enough cool to that name. But if you had a name like Pineapple Ed Walsh, you'd soon get status before you even started. But we all find out that status before you start ain't worth nothing if it ain't still there once you've got going. And even then you've got to keep adding more as you carry on. More of your own status, that is, that people can recognise. Then once people see you got some, they'll give you more. Young Eli Walsh didn't even have a guitar at that stage, let alone status. He just had a name that sounded right, and a gap where the status should be. But he'd heard of a remedy, and he knew where to find it. Now it don't always have to be this way, but yep, he went to the crossroad and got himself a deal. Goes down to that crossroad, tells the devil how he feels, and that merchant said, It's okay, just let me make your dreaming real. Here, Mr Walsh, are the terms of our agreement. First boy, you have to forego the name Pineapple Head. Fine, said the boy. I would have probably grown out of it anyway. The blonde hair that gave you the name has to go too, kid. That's really going to hurt, said the kid, but I guess it's all part of growing up. Instead, you will have slicked back black hair, explained the layer down of terms, and be known as Solemn Eli Walsh. I can live with it, said Walsh, if I'm going to play as good as you say. It'll be an image and one that'll work, if I can live up to it. What else? That's it, said the fake dealer. It's all yours. Thanks, said Solemn Eli. He looked at what seemed to be a mirror, saw that he was now just like he'd been described, and by his side was an old nickel-plated guitar. He took hold of that instrument and got away from the crossroad quick as he could go, but not so fast he didn't hear the voice behind him chuckling and saying, One more thing, Solemn Eli, and this is the one you'll find really hard. 
If you ever try to deny this story, then graven images of tropical fruit will begin to appear on your guitar. My guess is you won't need warning more than once. I reckon it'll just take a pineapple on the headstock to bring you back into line. Oh yeah, beardy feet, the young musician called over his shoulder. I'll believe that when I see it. And he headed for the city. Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. (laughs) 